unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, David Garfinkel, the world's greatest copywriting coach. David, how are you doing today? I'm good, Nathan. How are you? Good. I like your style. You got a bright blue pinky in the brain cap and you've got a blue button-up shirt and then you got a sweater under you. I'm just digging the blue today, man. And for the people that only listen, they should definitely be checking out the podcast on YouTube as well. But that said, what do we got going on for the listeners today? Well, thanks for your review of my get up and um yeah so we've got a very special episode today in our old master series featuring some wisdom from david ogilvy if you possibly haven't heard of him he was legendary in advertising in the madman days and kenneth roman wrote a book about ogilvy called the king of madison avenue i believe his book ogilvy and advertising was the only book on the subject to reach wide bestseller status far outside the reaches of the industry and the business community. Over 100,000 copies sold. And for a business book, that's like over a million sold for a novel or general interest book. Ogilvy was more of a team leader and team builder than a solo operator, more like a Joe Schrieffer or James Patterson. Patterson was an executive for J. Walter Thompson before he became a best-selling novelist. And I don't know if you know this, but he co-writes a lot of... I think he even co-wrote a novel with Bill Clinton. Can't imagine what that would be like. Ogilvy was more like those guys, more like Joe Schrieffer or James Patterson than, than a Gene Schwartz or a Gary Halbert. But don't get me wrong. Ogilvy was also a terrific and dedicated copywriter. He started out in direct response, and he understood the principles of that kind of copywriting inside out. So I found something the other day paging through... Ogilvy's autobiography, which is called David Ogilvy, an autobiography, very inventive title. And what he had is perfect fit for this podcast. Ogilvy had 11 rules for copywriting. Now, four of them are more focused on big ad agency stuff, but seven of them are great for us. And that's what we'll cover today. After we uncover something that is also perfect for us, copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear in this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So what we're going to talk about today comes from David Ogilvy, an autobiography. And this guy, Ogilvy, had a, a very adventurous life. After he retired from advertising, he moved to live in a chateau in France. And here in the cover of the book, this one's no longer available. It's like out of print, but someone else reprinted it. You can see him staring menacingly you at, at you, smoking a cigar, and there are swans in the background. Ogilvy had this thing about trumpeter swans, which have the largest wingspan of any swan known to man. I don't know if those are trumpeter swans on the cover, but there's a really good chance there are. The rules we're going to cover today come from his years of hard work, both 
writing copy himself and leading other copywriters. Okay, here's rule number one, word for word. You can divide advertising people into two groups, the amateurs and the professionals. The amateurs are in the majority. They aren't students of advertising. They guess. The professionals don't guess, so they don't waste so much of their clients' money. This makes sense on the face of it, but let's dig into it a little. If this is true, why would it be true? For the simple reason that when you have to make a choice, whatever it is, if you have studied advertising for a while, you'll be able to think of five or 10 different ways to go, whether it's with a headline, a funnel strategy, an offer, a guarantee, or something else. And you'll know in almost intuitively and instantly which ways worked and worked best in this kind of situation before and which ones didn't. So you'll be able to narrow your choices to winning approaches right off the bat. Just improving your odds is a major advantage all by itself. Now, when it comes to being a student of advertising, what does that mean? Most people would think that means reading books, collecting swipe files, and of course, listening to copywriters podcast. And that's one level of study and a good one to be sure. But there's another level of study most people don't always think about. And that's trying stuff, which a lot of people do, but paying attention to results, which not everybody does. And of course, paying attention to how you got those results. At this very practical level, getting experience with what works and what doesn't gives you an extra edge, no matter what you do. It doesn't make you bulletproof, but it sure increases your odds of success. And I think that counts as study, too. The third level, especially once you have a baseline knowledge and are active in the marketplace, is getting a mentor. Like me, for example. I work with people not only to help them improve their copy, but to make them overall better students of advertising, to improve their strategic thinking, to deepen their knowledge past the conventional wisdom. A big part of what we do combines very focused and specialized study in the book's reading area with action and analysis in the marketplace. So a distilled combination of the first two types of study. To recap this first rule, I would say that three things, reading and learning, actually getting deep marketplace experience and getting mentorship make you a much better copywriter than just guessing. I have people ask me a lot, how did you get started in copywriting? How do I get started in copywriting? And my thoughts on it are nowadays, especially with the ability to do affiliate marketing through things like ClickBank or the ability to get white labeled products and put your own branding on it or uh, just access to the internet at large, start selling. Get something that you think that there's a demand for, that you've seen a demand for, and start selling it yourself. Figure out a way to get traffic to your own sales pages. Figure out a way to get people on your own email list and start selling. And I think that that a lot of people say, well, just go find somebody who will pay you and learn with their money. And I have found that I, I always learn faster when it's my own money on the line. And there's no reason not to take that approach. Yeah, if you have the guts to do that, it, it's the best way. And I would call that like really smart training wheels because there are really so many aspects to this. And if you already have a product that works with, you know, landing page copy that works, 
then you can just focus on the funnel part or the lead gen part or you know a, a small portion of the whole process and that's that's a really good way now not everybody's gonna maybe have the the courage or the disposition to do it the way you said it but i i agree with you i think it's terrific all right rule number two the difference between a great advertisement and an ordinary one can be as much as 19 to 1 when you measure them in terms of sales results i admit this one's kind of hard to believe personally i have a gut feeling it's true but I can't ever remember seeing a 19 times increase in sales. I do remember hearing a similar number from the late Ted Nicholas back in the day. I have seen with my own clients doubling and tripling response rates. And sometimes that's all you need to go from just breaking even to becoming wildly profitable. Because the moment you move on to the profit side of the balance sheet, you can scale. If you have the ability to do that, even doubling or tripling response can be a ticket to one part of a journey towards a fortune. Now, let's look like why this would be so, whether it's 2x, 3x, or 19x. I can think of three main reasons. First, the headline, well, let's put it this way. I can think of three ways this could happen. First, you have a headline that grabs the attention of more people, or better, more of the right people, who would be prospects for what you're selling in the first place. Second, the big idea or hook or concept of the ad really resonates with the person reading it or hearing it or watching it. It creates a, wow, this could be me kind of reaction. Third, by the time you get to the close, the prospect is convinced. Logic and emotion work together to create conviction. Doing that is hard sometimes, but when you get it just right, sales explode. So take an average ad and improve any one of those three things and you'll get a bump in response. Improve all three, and who knows, maybe you will increase your sales by a factor of 19. I like the very first one. I think that it goes ignored a lot, which is the importance of who you're targeting with your ad. I've had ads that just changing the targeting or just changing the list from a maybe might buy list to somebody who's recently raised their hands in the last 30 days list. And I've saw ads go from a 3% conversion to an 18% conversion. So I can definitely see a 19 times return if you employ all three of these tactics properly. Yeah. So 3% to 18% is a six times conversion, which is, yeah. I mean, huge, huge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rule number three. Too many people are involved in the advertising process. Too many levels of approval. Too many committees. Committees can criticize, but they cannot create. That is why so many advertisements and so many commercials look like the minutes of a committee meeting. Now, this is a bigger problem for Madison Avenue-style large corporate advertising, but we have our share of it as well with our more entrepreneurial direct response clients. When I was at the peak of my writing copy for clients, I decided the kind of clients I wanted the most were the ones I called benevolent dictators. They didn't have so much to do with their own business culture, the dictator part, as the fact that there was one person at the top and they understood and wanted direct response copy. And most important, when it comes to the copy, what they say goes. If I couldn't get a client like that, then I'd want one where anyone else who was going to review the copy was a copywriter or had a lot of experience with direct response copy. 
because otherwise I would get into these long, pointless discussion about things that really had nothing to do with sales effectiveness of the copy. Just the opposite, in fact. People wanted the copy to look like it came from a more educated, sophisticated person. People wanted the grammar to be just so. People wanted to neuter the copy. But copy is not a dog you got from the shelter. Fact is, civilians don't understand direct response copy from the business perspective. Even though they end up buying offers promoted by direct response copy in their role as consumers, they just don't realize it was copy because the copy worked so well they didn't notice its quote-unquote offensive qualities. All that said, there are some committees built into the copy approval process at places like Agora. It's called the legal department. I don't have a problem with them because they understand what the copywriter is trying to do and their main job is to help the copywriter do it without getting into legal trouble. And from my friends who are still working with Agora, more often than not, they don't ruin the copy at all. It's not always pretty, but it's necessary when you're at a big company and your marketing is visible to the public at large that you keep it compliant. But aside from legal, I'm in favor of getting the committees away from copy and keeping them focused on doing what they do best, which is nothing whatsoever. (laughs) I am not going to name the particular company, but for a while, for about three years, I was writing for a company in a very popular industry, like a mass market industry, and they brought in sensitivity readers that would go through and make sure that nobody could be offended by anything. And it completely neutered my copy. It made my job unbearable. I don't even think I could say neutered in the copy. So yeah, I I feel it. And I'm glad to know that it's not just a recent thing. This is something that copywriters have been dealing with and overcoming for a long time. Well, so here's something interesting. uh, And this is from something else I'm working on, but I think it really applies here. You get these really silly, non-offensive, you know, commercials like, you know, a gecko playing golf or something like that. One question you got to ask yourself is, does that company depend on those commercials to make the sale? And with all the silly insurance company ads, the answer is no. They have armies of licensed insurance agents selling the product. So when, you know, I think when all of the weight is on the shoulders of the copy to make the sale, your considerations need to change. Mm -hmm. All right. So number four, unless your advertising contains a big idea, it will pass like a ship in the night. How do you come up with a big idea? Okay. First, let me give you a short answer. You keep trying different combinations of ideas into a new, till a new original one pops out. I'll say that again. You keep trying different combinations of ideas until a new original one really pops out. A lot of trial and error. The big idea is such an important concept that on this podcast, we did three shows on it, but they were all before we were on YouTube. You can look at them on Copywriters Podcast, just in the upper left-hand corner, go to the hamburger menu and type in big idea. One of them was with Joe Schrieffer of Agora Financial, who is one of the best big idea creators I've ever met. He's probably the best I've ever met. The classic example, and this isn't Joe Schrieffer, but this is but a classic example of a big idea. The classic example we like to use is the way Steve Jobs 
introduced the iPod. It puts a thousand songs in your pocket. That was a revolutionary idea, big idea at the time. Of course, Spotify makes that seem puny, but that was then and this is now. Now, here's a recap of what we said on one of the Big Idea podcasts a while back. A big idea is not making up a brand new desire in the marketplace that someone will come up with in a brilliant flash of random creativity. The product the copywriter will be selling is still based on an existing, predictable, and largely unchanging desire of the market. What's new with a big idea is that you come up with a way to get your prospect's interest to sell the product that already taps into existing desires. That said, a big idea is a concept, maybe a headline, maybe something else that's so fresh and original, it can redefine an industry or start a new one by itself. Gene Schwartz talks about this in his introduction to breakthrough advertising. Now, he doesn't specifically use the word big idea, but he talks about copy. He's talking about the same thing. Copy that opens up an entirely new market for an existing product or copy that gives an old product a new slant or copy that provides competitively battered product a new weapon, not only to protect itself against its imitators, but to actually damage or destroy the loyalty of the competitors following. So those are great examples of what a big idea is. But what's really important to underline is a big idea is not necessarily about coming up with a new product idea. It's more about coming up with a breakthrough copywriting idea, whether the product is brand new or well-established. I remember we did two or three episodes talking about big ideas and talking about golden threads. And one of them that you came up with or that you had brought to light was it's like finding oil under the Eiffel Tower. And I'm not going to go completely into the idea, but it was a way to reframe and make a new association so that all of a sudden the idea made sense to the reader and giving them that clarity by saying, it's like this, this thing that you, you're kind of fuzzy on. It's actually like this thing that you can understand really well. And now you've got the idea of the piece. And I would definitely recommend go back to copywriterspodcast.com, search out those old episodes because there is just some gold nuggets inside of them. That's true. Yeah, I didn't come up with that idea. It was an Agora idea, and I, I think it was Jack Ford who did, um, but it was one of their copywriters, not me. But yes, it's, it's such a great example. Number five, you cannot bore people. And, and I mentioned this last week on the show, quoting Ogilvy, you cannot bore people into buying your product. You can only interest them in buying it. So first, many big ad agencies and other clueless marketers think that putting together a comedy sketch and adding a product name to it will actually increase sales. <laughs> I love to pick on big insurance companies, but since I'm not sure how much the Geico Gecko or the Liberty Mutual Emu are doing to increase sales. But one thing I'm sure of, as I mentioned before, is both of these companies have armies of insurance agents to actually close the sales. So I think we can say it's fair to say they're not depending on the little animal flights of fancy to get business. Entrepreneurs and direct response copywriters that write for entrepreneurs don't have that luxury. So we need to look at the idea of interesting in a more practical way. That is, how do you make your message interesting in a way that's actually going to help sales 
rather than just amuse the people who created and paid for the ad? The answer, quite simply, is stories. Interesting stories about the product you are selling as told through the eyes or life experience of the people who are using them. It could be a case study, testimonial, or any other number of stories that are not only interesting, but also advance the sale as part of the larger sales message. Another way to add interest to your copy is through use of the big idea. When you can get someone to look at your product or the need for your product in a new way, that in and of itself is interesting. If this whole idea is hard for you, review some classic ads by John Caples, John Carlton, Joe Sugarman, and the Wall Street Journal. The most iconic example, the Wall Street Journal, Two Young Men Letter. It was interesting without being cute or clever. I want to say that again. It was interesting without being cute or clever. And it brought in a documented $2 billion in subscriptions, more than any other ad known. You can find a copy of this online by Googling Wall Street Journal Two Young Men Letter. Ogilvy, as usual, was right when he said you can't bore people into buying. Some of his classic ads, like the one featuring the Hathaway shirt man and the Rolls Royce that was so quiet, the loudest sound you could hear while driving was the ticking of the clock and the dashboard. Those are great examples of keeping your advertising interesting. I I really like all of those examples. I think what I really like about them is just the, I don't want to say counterintuitiveness, but the kind of the shock value without without being like a repulsive shock value, but like a really the loudest thing in the car is the ticking of the clock. How can you not find that interesting? So if you can, if you can find something that is impossible to ignore and use that as a way to get people into your copy, great, great technique. Yeah. So that, that comes not, thank you. And you know, that comes not just from stories that comes from research and thinking what, what's interesting about what, what would make people go, God, I got to know more about this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number six, the consumer is not a moron. She is your wife. Try not to insult her intelligence. So before you get all up in arms about his language and his sexism, understand Ogilvy wrote this in 1980 and one of his other lessons, which we're not covering here because it doesn't apply as neatly as it did in the time past, is that most of the products advertised were bought by women. A lot of household consumer products in the 60s and 70s were written as though housewives were morons. So he had a reason for saying what he said. And that said, I think what he said was a respectful statement. But the larger point here is prospects aren't idiots. To the degree that we treat them like idiots, they treat us like pariahs. That is, when we treat them like idiots, they want nothing to do with us. However, don't mistake this for an invitation to write in clunky, big word, jargony, gobbledygook. Writing like an awkward professor putting together an impenetrable journal article may not, quote unquote, insult the prospect's intelligence, but it doesn't show much respect either. Remember what the gold standard for intelligence, the person who is the gold standard for intelligence, Einstein himself said, everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. I've had mentoring clients with IQs approaching the Einstein level, but they didn't talk down to me or anyone else or talk in a complicated way. 
part of their genius was they would almost always speak to me in clear, simple words. I think they were smart enough to figure out that the best way to communicate their brilliant ideas was to speak simply. It's true, it's harder to write simple copy than complicated copy. Just as Mark Swain said, it takes longer to write a short letter than it does to write a long one. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't make the effort and keep working at it until you get the result. You should do that. Because the highest compliment you can pay to a prospect's intelligence is that and the highest respect. Just a tip on that from my own personal perspective if I don't completely understand how something works or if I don't completely understand the offer that I'm trying to sell, a lot of times I'll overcomplicate it. And so when I find what I'm writing and I'm finding, oh, this is overly complicated, I'll go back and I usually take that as a hint. Hey, I don't understand this well enough to explain it simply yet. So going back and doing some initial recapping, restudying, reviewing of of how things work, how the offer works, how the product works, how the service works, and then go back and try and explain it in a more simple way. When I do that, the sales go up, the overcomplicated explanation, the talking down to the prospect goes down. And so usually if I'm having trouble with that, it's because I don't understand the offer or the solution well enough to explain it in a way that doesn't talk down to the people. So it's a, it's a me thing. It's something that I have to go back and fix in myself before I can convey the message properly. Yeah. Thanks for making the candid admission. And, you know, I, I think what I'd add onto that is sometimes an hour or two or three more really getting into the offer and breaking down and bumping your head against the wall and looking at it from another way and asking more questions and sitting with it, taking a walk, whatever it takes is time well spent, even though it's not time, you know, actually fingers to the keyboard or pen to paper. And I think you've just indicated why you actually end up making more money that way too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number seven, advertising should be true, credible, and pleasant. People do not buy from bad-mannered liars. Okay, I pretty much agree with that. Definitely the true and credible part. If it's not credible, they won't believe you. If it's not true, if it's a very credible lie, but it's so it's not true, sooner or later that could end up costing you money, both in refunds and possibly in legal action against the business. The being pleasant part, well, not entirely. Sometimes you need to confront people about a problem in order for them to realize they had it. You brought this up yourself, Nathan, last week when you point out that sometimes a copywriter's job is to articulate a problem. Nathan, you brought this up yourself last week sometimes when you pointed out that sometimes a copywriter's job is to articulate a problem someone is having so that maybe for the first time they can get clarity in what's bothering them. But I think copy can cross the line when it disrespects the prospect. Unfortunately, part of human nature is to behave disrespectfully if you can get away with it. Evolutionary biologist Robert Sapolsky says it's not humans, just humans. Many animals who see themselves as stronger, more important than other animals, including those of their own species, will try and push them around as long as they can get away with it. Um, There are also some interesting studies about (laughs) when the tribe turns on that animal, but it's pretty good that we need to get into that. But you don't have to give in to that urge yourself. And I don't think it helps you business-wise. People in your marketplace talk to each other. 
So do what you can to keep those conversations positive. Now, back to the credible part. In our last podcast, we talked about believability. A couple points here about using research for believability that were so important, they're worth repeating. First, just getting the facts and expanding your knowledge of what the facts are helps you come across as more credible. But second, this may even be more important, you can get from doing this, but second, and you can get this from doing good research, you'll be more credible when you write the way people in your market actually talk. I usually just throw a white lab coat on whenever I want credibility, and that just overrides <laughs> any skepticism in my prospects. So that's a that's you a, a doctor on the internet. I thought <laughs> well be finished with that years ago. Okay, no, no, but what you said about talking in their language, learning their vernacular, learning their insider words, and no matter how intelligent you think your market is. Avoid using the $10 multi-syllabatic words because even if they are smart, they don't want to have to sit there and think while they're reading. They want you to guide them. They don't want to have to hit those constant speed bumps of eight-syllable words. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a link to David Ogilvie, an autobiography, in, in the show notes, and it's a different cover. I got an earlier edition, but... There's not a lot of direct copywriting stuff. It's, it's an interesting book. His point of view is interesting. I wouldn't say it's one, if you can only read three or four copywriting books, it's, it's the only one you should read. But yeah, why not? <laughs> All right. We will definitely include a link to pick that book up if you want to check it out in the show notes over at copywriterspodcast.com. Again, some of our earlier episodes, we did deep dives on one or two of the topics that we talked about today. So if you want to get some more expanded insights on those, again, check out copywriterspodcast.com and do some keyword searches for things like the big idea, the golden thread. And uh, while you're there, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss any episodes in the future. David, thank you for putting this together, man. And until next time, we'll catch you later. Yeah, thanks. Catch you later. When you have some copy and the performance of the copy is mission critical, who are you going to call? Not Ghostbusters. They don't do copy critiques last time I checked. A lot of people, from the most advanced to the up-and-coming copywriters, reach out to me. I do copy critiques. One client, Brett Alcorn, has hired me 20 times. Yep, 20 times. That's because on the very first critique I did for him, he doubled his conversions on a video sales letter. Every month, I do a handful of critiques for GKIC members. These are copywriters and small business owners who are trained and experienced, but they need another set of experienced eyes to go over their copy to take it to the next level. One A-lister told me I go over copy like an IRS auditor. Now, I wasn't sure whether to take that as a compliment or not, but he assured me it was. He said, I can find the one flaw or several flaws in copy that no one else was able to and make winning suggestions on how to fix them. So when you need a copy critique, just go to GarfinkelCoaching.com and click on the services tab. GarfinkelCoaching.com for a critique. Thank you. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.